Pastor Mike Favares with Focal Point Ministries. I trust that the following recorded sermon will be a benefit and a challenge to your Christian walk. For more information about Focal Point Ministries, log on to our website at focalpointministries.org, focalpointministries.org, or call us toll-free at 888-320-5885. Well, you've come on an interesting weekend here at Compass Bible Church, if you're new, because this is not normally what we do at this time. Normally, we're expositing a passage of Scripture, passage by passage in sequence, and we're in the middle of Luke 22, which we will continue with next week, but uh, we set aside one weekend a year, and all three services do nothing but answer questions. So we will do the best we can here with no uh, prearranged questions, no plants, no scripts, just an open mic, and I got two people on two microphones. Here's Jay Wharton over here, and Pastor Mark over there, and we'll just take our normal study time to answer whatever questions you might have about the Christian life, about the Bible, about uh, theology, whatever it might be. And so wave down either Mark or Jay, and while you got a mic on this side, and if there's someone on the other side, just wave them down, and we'll just go back and forth, and we hope and pray as we have been. This will be an edifying, good time together. So let's start right here. Morning. Good morning. So in First Corinthians chapter 7, you have Paul. He speaks out of turn, uh, or excuse me, not from the Lord. He even says, like, this is coming from me, not from the Lord. So can you talk about that when you look at all Scripture is inspired by God and defend that. And then also, if you go into chapter 7, verse 40, he says, I think I'm speaking from the Holy Spirit. So can you talk a little bit about that word, I think, as opposed to being convicted? Right. Well, first of all, you got to define the word Lord. In the passage, he's talking about marriage in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. The Lord he's referring to because he's specifically talking about the commands that have come from the Lord regarding the covenant of marriage. And so he's saying the Lord said this. He's speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ said this. Remember, this is an early letter, comes before the writings of uh, the codification of the Gospels. So he's making sure that he's being clear about the fact this isn't something that I'm saying Jesus taught. This is something I'm telling you. Now, he'd already quoted what Jesus had said. Now he's going to say what he says. And it starts the book in 1 Corinthians by saying, listen, I have this apostleship from God. I speak for God. Matter of fact, when that passage we often quote about, uh, you know, no eye is seen, ear is heard, or mind conceived, the things that the Lord has planned for us, we always quote that as though, oh, isn't it neat? There's a lot of stuff we don't know. He goes on to say, but these things we've revealed to you. He is an apostle. The apostle is speaking revelatory truth. He's making the distinction there because they're not saying, oh, wait a minute, we know that's not what Jesus said. Uh, we know that's what you're saying. They're both of equal value in terms of authority. That's what the whole apostolic position is. They're prophetic. That's why in today's Bible reading, they're doing miraculous signs, as Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 say, so that he can affirm his apostleship. That's the point of those miracles we read about in the book of Acts this morning. So the point is that just because he says, these are the things that I say, not what the Lord said is because he's already been talking about what the Lord Jesus had said about the topic. Now he's saying what he says. And then at the end he says, and I think, which is the way he often speaks, especially to the Corinthians, that I have the Spirit of God. And read Second Corinthians if you think the I think is in equivocation or doubt. It's clear that he's saying, uh, you guys need to know. I have the Spirit of God. So rhetorically, uh, he uses that phrase, but it's clear throughout all that Paul writes 
to the Corinthians. He is an apostle. Uh, they're trying to undermine his apostleship. There's more sarcasm in First and Second Corinthians than any other writings from the apostle Paul. And it's not that it's a sarcastic statement, but it's a rhetorical way to state the fact that, guys, you know I have the Spirit of God. You know I'm speaking authoritative. So there's no, hey, do not be like me here quoting a passage of Scripture and then saying, oh, you know, the Bible says this. Oh, but I say that. And then you'd know, oh, one has authority from God and the other one's Pastor Mike's opinion. If you read that passage that way uh, and think, you know, that's what we've got going on. That's not what we have going on. We have the apostle who speaks authoritatively, but he is distinguishing that Jesus talked on the topic, but certainly he didn't want to lead them to believe that what he went on to say about it was something that was quoting Jesus's earthly ministry. Because Jesus did talk about those very topics in 1 Corinthians 7 and Matthew chapter 19. And the things that he said in Matthew 19, he refers to and ascribes to the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, not the Lord God. Yeah, good question. This is also a focal point question. Okay. Um, a woman called and she um, babysat for her daughter, um, two children, little, who had recently remarried another woman. Okay. And her question was... Can I, do I need to, you know, walk away from my daughter because of what she's done? Right. Or can I stay and continue babysitting? Okay, let me clarify the, the, the org chart here. This is, restate the, the relationships. This is someone's daughter that's, that's come out as a lesbian and, and claims to be married to another woman. Correct. And she's wondering about her relationship with her grandchildren. Correct. Well, she babysat. She comes to the house, right. lives with them sure, right. to babysit the grandchildren. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I think a godly grandmother is needed in that home more than ever. So I would be 100% behind that. Okay. You know, what I don't want is us as Christians going around endorsing something that God says is to him repugnant and an abomination. So I don't want any kind of, hey, this is all copacetic and cool. And you know, we Christians are all behind you because we would be deceivers and liars if we said that, because we know the Bible is very clear about those issues. But you know, certainly the opportunity to have an influence as a grandmother on the life of your grandchildren, not to mention your daughter, even though that she's rebelling against God's clear standards in the word. Yeah, I, I definitely keep that, that door open without a question. Okay. My question is in Romans 6. Seven. It says, for the person who had died with Christ has been freed from the power of sin. Mm -hmm. So can you elaborate more about the sin itself? But from my understanding, sin reflects about sin nature. And throughout the Bible, it did say about sin singular and sins with S, which are personal sins. So is there any way, can you... Kind of explain yeah. that to us. What should be really clear from the beginning of Romans is the equation that is set up. And when he starts using shorthand about that equation by saying set free from sin, we've got to understand what he means. Matter of fact, if you have your Bible there open, you should go over. Let's start with um, chapter 8 where he really comes to the crescendo of this argument. The first eight chapters are a unit here, if you will. And, and so he says in verse 1 of chapter 8, there is therefore now... See, this is the whole summary of what he said, starting in chapter 1 about the sin problem, going through chapter 3, the universal, the universality of the sin problem, and then faith and demonstrating that faith that is now saving us, then the focus of faith, which is Christ, and all the issues leading to this. There is now, uh, there's no, no condemnation for those in Christ. For the law of the spirit of life, which is a way to summarize what he's just said in chapters 4 through 7, has set us free from the law of sin and death. Here's the law of sin and death, which he stated very clearly a couple of times, I mean, almost verbatim. The wages of sin 
is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life. So when you talk about what is the power of sin, he says this also in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The power of sin is this. If you do wrong, you're guilty and you will be punished. God has to punish sin. That's the law. The wages of sin is death. Not just biological death, but all the whole realm that goes with it. Now here's the great news. Jesus Christ came to reverse that problem for those who would put their faith in his son. And that law of sin and death, we are now freed from. That's the picture of release. So when we talk about being freed from sin, if you're looking at the context of what Paul is saying in this book, it's that that law that you should be condemned, because the Old Testament very made it very clear, obey, you'll be blessed. Sin, and you're going to be cursed and punished. Now all of a sudden, we get a freedom from that. You and I can sit here today as being sinners. We've sinned against God. We continue to sin, hopefully at a less clip. But we now are set free. Why? Because the law of the spirit and life. God intervened by his spirit, proclaiming Christ to be, as it says from the fourth verse, the son of God by the spirit of power when he was raised from the dead. That arrangement of God and the power of the spirit has now given me life even though I deserve death. So to be freed from sin is to be freed from, in most of what Paul's talking about in the first eight chapters, freed from that equation of condemnation. And he's saying that's what the point of the gospel is. Now, are there issues in chapter 6, which he goes on to talk about in terms of the freedom that we have to no longer continue in a pattern of sin? Okay, those are the distinctions between justification, which I've just summarized, and sanctification, which is how does sin have a hold on us? Chapter 6 goes on to say, now, you need to consider yourself dead to sin. If the wages of sin is death, I realize this, I've been freed from that equation, that law. I'm not going to be condemned. But now I have this continual problem of temptation and sin in in the world, in my flesh. The devil's trying to get me to sin. So now I have to see in that passage, chapter 6, that I'm going to consider the members or parts of my body as instruments of righteousness. And he says, okay, you are freed in the sense that even in your sanctification, you don't have to do what you used to do. And Paul makes this clear as he writes in Ephesians, that that futility of your thinking, of doing what you did as a non-Christian, you now have a, a new capacity. Now, here's something not taught as much as it used to be, and it should be, and that is the miracle of regeneration. There is something about God regenerating us, changing us from the inside that changes my relationship to sin. Whereas before, I was like like a lion who had a choice between fresh lamb meat and a, and a salad. I'm just going to choose lamb meat every time. That's my nature. That's what I do. But now, as a Christian, God says, I've changed your heart. That's advantage number one. I'm no longer, to put it in terms of Jeremiah 31, no longer have that heart inside, in Jeremiah 34, uh, of, of stone, Ezekiel, I'm sorry, uses that, that analogy. And now, Jeremiah 31, he's made a new spirit. He's, he's made me a new spirit, small s. Second capacity, he's put his spirit within me to move me to keep his law. So now all of a sudden, I have two brand new capacities that I didn't have before. And I can start to do things as a Christian that before I couldn't do. I cannot please God because my mind was hostile toward God. Now, I'm not. So in that sense, there's a sub-theme going through Romans 6. You've got a freedom there, too. Does that mean we'll never sin? No. James makes that clear, right? We all stumble in many ways. And if you could keep your mouth from sinning, you know the rest of your life would be in check. John says, I write these things to you, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, so that you may not sin. But if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So we know this. You're never going to be sinless in your Christian life contra the Wesleyans and, and other perfectionists, but you are going to sin less, according to First John. First John chapter 1 says, if you claim you have no sin, you're lying. 
chapter 3, it says you better not continue in the same pattern of sin or you're lying. So as a Christian, I know I have a new capacity. But the major theme of chapters 1 through 8 in Romans is I'm freed from what should legally be my future. And that is I'm tied to the problem of sin. Now I'm freed from the problem of sin in justification. And now, even in my daily life, I have a new capacity to be practically free from those state, those decisions and temptations of sin. That's why sanctification is progressive and justification is immediate. And so six, and I love chapter six because it's the one place where Paul pushes really hard in the first half of the book on the issue of sanctification. And I like that because it's a whole treatise about justification. But nevertheless, I'd say the one is complete and it's absolute at the moment of our conversion and that we're freed from the law of sin and death. No condemnation. I have no future condemnation before God. It's the sanctification process that chapter six is talking about. And we're also freed in the sense that we don't have to sin the way we used to. Morning, Professor Mike. Good morning. I'd uh, like to have the, know what the Christian view is on donating and transplanting of human organs. Yes. Um, this book, and I hate bringing up this book that I've just written, but it's coming out August the 7th. <laughs> I have a chapter on, and it's called 10 Mistakes People Make About Heaven, Hell, and the Afterlife. And one of the chapters that I think is a mistake is it doesn't matter what happens to my body after I die. It's chapter 10. That chapter, I make a case for Christian burial that has been the biblical pattern and has been the pattern in the Christian church until recently. And then, of course, I have a subsection in there, what about organ donation? I try to make a very important distinction. When people try to attack my view on following the biblical pattern of setting the body aside and waiting for the resurrection, as we did with Christ's body and all the bodies in the scripture, with few exceptions, and those that did, even as we read in our DVR this morning, it was a statement of God's judgment. They say, well, you're not consistent because I'm assuming then we can't be kind and benevolent by being engaged in donor uh, organ donation. And I, I make the case in, in that chapter, that's not at all what we're saying. Even as the Galatians, as Paul wrote to the Galatian churches and the Galatian Christians, and he said, if you could gouge out your eyes and give them to me, you would have done it. Well, it wouldn't help because there was no cornea transplants or whatever it was that Paul needed. But there is today. And so that organ transplant as an act of love in granting part of my healthy body to someone's body that is not healthy, I'm saying to myself, that is a very different motive than what has grown up in in Europe and eventually had spread to the United States in trying to make a statement actually against the afterlife and against God by saying we're going to burn our bodies and cremate our bodies. And I'm not here to induce guilt if you've done that, but I would suggest you think that through and maybe my book or others like it may be helpful in kind of rethinking what you do with your body after you die. But someone else does with your body because you won't be around to do anything with your body. But I would say organ donation is in a completely different category. God is obviously able to take a cremated body because he will have a one-to-one correspondence between what is what dies and what is resurrected. He can, he can take from the blueprint of the genetic material of that person and rebuild the entirety of the body. If I you know, give my corneas or my kidneys or my heart or whatever, there's no issue there, obviously, before God. But I do want to respect my theology by the way I deal with the body of my loved ones when they die. But I have no objection to organ donation. And although, with that said, asterisk, I do think you need to be careful about what's going on in the organ industry today. And some of you are in the medical industry. But I do think we've got to be smart and careful about that and judicious about what's going on. And uh, not just say, oh, yeah, 
you know, let's, let's just all think everyone is on the up and up when it comes to those things. Yeah, that probably shouldn't have been said because I'd have to explain myself, but I can explain it on the patio. Just be careful. I have no problem with organ donation. I don't think it's an unchristian thing to do. Of course, you're going, of course it's not. But if I believe in burial, then you're going to see an inconsistency or you're going to try to see one. And I'm going to say, I don't believe there is. Those are two categorical different things. Morning, Pastor Mike. Morning, Jeff. So this year for my DBR, I'm doing the chronological Bible. Okay. And I find it very interesting because it takes you back and forth between parallel accounts and passages in different books. Right. So sometimes you see differences or apparent discrepancies. Yeah. One that I had a question on was between 2 Samuel 24 and 1 Chronicles 21 about the census, where in Samuel it says God incited David to take the census, and in Chronicles it says Satan incited him. Right. Right. Ultimate cause and agency of cause. Yeah. It's like in, in Job 1. If I looked at Job 1 and I read Job 1 and I see in that passage all the details that I have, I'm going to say, who caused Job such grief? And I'm going to say, well, because I read all the details, Satan caused it. But even in that, I'll bet, I don't know how actively personal Satan was involved. Perhaps he was, but he might have sent some henchmen to do this. A lot of things are going on at once. You know, with the Sabaeans coming in and taking the, you know, the cattle and his kids dying and weather problems and all of that. Yeah. Nevertheless, we say Satan did it. But then if you just had a summation of that and you looked at what happened, you'd say, well, I know in summary, it wouldn't have happened had God not said, okay, Satan, you can do this. So the permission that is granted by God, letting the leash out on Satan in that passage still attributes him to the fact that Satan's responsible for what happened to Job. And you'd be accurate in saying that. He is the ultimate cause in that sense. But he's not the immediate agency of that evil. And he never is. Every problem in your life, you think about it, that is a negative evil problem. Your intersection with evil. God says you, you can't blame God for that. God is a holy God. You can only hold him responsible as a sovereign God. And he's even saying, I'll cause all those terrible things, Romans chapter 8, which includes famine, sword, pestilence, death, persecution, all those things are going to work together for good. Okay, just like Joseph, when he sat there and got sold into slavery and all the bad things happened to him in the prison. And then he says, you guys meant it for evil. God meant it for good. What a minute. You meant it? Yeah, they did mean it. They didn't like Joseph. God meant it? Oh, God had another intention for it. Who's ultimately responsible? God is. So who incited the census? Well, Satan was the agency of it. Ultimately, it wouldn't happen had God not allowed this to happen. And so God is credited with that. And we see that sometimes in scripture. Like, can destruction come to a city if God did not first decree it? As we're looking at the end of the the period of of, of Judah in the Old Testament in the 6th century. Those are statements where we say, was God's going around destroying cities? Well, there's a lot of passages you can see that's exactly what's happening. But we know there's an agency. There are evil kings, there are evil people. Even in Daniel, we'll see there are evil spiritual forces at work. So distinguishing those two make both of those statements accurate. Just like you would say, if something bad, if you get cancer, if you have some problem financially, God is not going, oh man, I, I, I turned my back and look what happens. He knows what's going on. He allows what's going on. He has, in his will, mapped out what's going on. So he's ultimately responsible, but he's not the agency or the cause. He's not nefariously coming up with these plans as though he's trying to inflict evil on his people. So there's, there's the answer to that. Yes. Good morning, Mike. Good morning question is, uh, a couple of months ago, a Jehovah Witness came to my door, and it has now transgressed into uh, uh, back-and-forth emails, 
Pete's Coffee, and we are now at the point after going through scripture and trying to look at the entirety, interpreting it correctly, including John 1.1, John 1.3, Colossians 1.15, the Old Testament. We're now at the point, how do you, how does the Jehovah Witness decide what scripture they're going to include? Because they changed it from the King James to the New World Translation. So when they made the change to the current uh, translation from the King James, they said it's because they found these manuscripts which was so much better. What, what approach would you use if somebody said that to you? I would say you're full of nonsense. That's well, the that's nice way to say, to say it. But I'm trying to keep the ball in the air okay. and get him to intellectually understand through the power of the Holy Spirit well, what the truth is. Well, pick a word, but I'm going to make it clear. That's, uh, that's, that's folly. It's nonsense. It's pure fantasy what you're saying. The four guys responsible for the New World Translation, who finally came out that these were the guys that did it, none of them knew the original languages. One guy had like two semesters of Greek. And then when they were put on trial, at one point, they couldn't even recognize or translate a simple sentence from Hebrew or Greek. These guys don't know what they're talking about. They took an English translation and built their theology into it. The New World Translation is a mess. Anyone after taking two semesters of Greek can read parts of it and know you don't know the language. It's a joke. It's a fraud. It is not true. And if you're JW and you happen to be here or you're listening, it's a fraud. Come in. We'll look at it. We'll open up. You talk about the anarthrous use of the word theos in John 1. Because they're going to say the word was a God. I mean, they love that passage in John 1.1. It is a complete and utter grammatical joke. There's not a non-Christian atheist who teaches in the classics department at any university in the country that's teaching addict or Koine Greek that would ever say, that's a good translation of that passage. It's insane. I can point out to you 12 other anarthrists or, or the, the word God, theos, that doesn't use an article in front of it, that clearly, grammatically, because of the many rules, this is clearly God. There's no doubt about it. These guys didn't know the language. They didn't know what they were talking about. And just like every other cult group out there, you have to undermine your reliability or your confidence, rather, in the reliability of Scripture. And that's what they've done. They come to your door, they talk to you, and they basically have to say, this is not a reliable text. But you know what? You know, Judge Rutherford and Knorr and all these guys, they fixed it for us. Just like Joseph Smith in Mormonism. Every single denomination and religion is, is, is all perverse before God. But... I'm here to fix it all. I got some special gold tablets. You know, you can't see them or I'm not going to let you have them. And I'm going to tell you where they are. But here's my new thing. I'm going to tell you what it is. These are the kinds of things that you need to know. When they're undermining your confidence in the Bible, I would just say go to our bookstore or go online and get any good book on the history of the Bible, how it came to be. And when they say, well, your Bible, you know, we found new manuscripts and all this is wrong. It's nonsense. It's utter nonsense. If you do any of the work to look at the history and reliability of the scripture, uh, everyone has to undermine the Bible. Even Islam, right? They want to say, oh, we believe in Isa. We believe in Jesus, right? He's a prophet. Oh, but what your book says about it's all wrong. We'll just tell you what the Quran says about it. Well, even the textual criticism of the Quran itself, we can undermine as compared to the Bible. The Bible stands alone in being an accurate representation of what was written from antiquity. You don't have any other book that's like this in terms of its reliability. You may struggle with the supernatural issues, but I'm going to say the ongoing supernatural issue is prophecy. They don't have any of that. 
They don't have any of that. And guys that want to come along and change the Bible to fit their theology, which is exactly what they did in the Watchtower and Tract Society, same thing they did in Mormonism, same thing they did in Islam, they're going to have to make you believe this isn't reliable. So spend your time. I mean, you can spend time learning uh, JW theology or Mormon theology or, or Islam, but spend your time knowing whether or not this is an accurate reflection of what, what was written in Hebrew and Greek in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And then you're going to come away going, whoa, 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 I'm done. As soon as you start saying, we have this all wrong. There's no book that's had more scholarship given to it in terms of where it came from, how it got here. I've been to Yale. I've been to places where I can sit with second century manuscripts of this book. I mean, you can't do that. You, you can't say it's all been changed when I can pull out papyri from, from acts that I've held in my hand between two pieces of glass and say in the Antiquities Library at Yale, yeah, it's all been changed. It hasn't been changed. I've seen it for, my, for myself. So they don't know what they're talking about. And I, I guess you can continue on with this if you think you're making progress. But here's what I ask. Anyone who wants to spend my time debating their, their cultic views, I would say this. If I could convince you and answer your questions and intellectually satisfy right now that whatever you think is wrong with this book, I could prove you, whether it takes me two days or two years, would you become a biblical, Bible-believing Christian and leave behind the Watchtower and Tract Society or the Mormon Church or, or your mosque in Islam? If they say no, then we're done. I don't want to waste my time. I, I want someone who's saying, because here's what I'll say, the day they knock on my door and they mark me now in my neighborhood, they don't come around anymore, which is kind of convenient for me. <laughs> But I will say to them, I want to become a JW. I want to become one today. I want to become one, if you can prove that it's true. I just want the same commitment from you, that you're willing to leave this all behind if it's not true. Because I'll leave behind biblical Christianity. You just got to show me it's not true. And, and they, they can't. I got in the bookstore Ron Rhodes' book, their little book, Reasoning from the Scriptures. He went, that was his first book in the series that he wrote, uh, Reasoning from the Scriptures with Jehovah's Witnesses. Are you familiar with that book? That would be a good book to have because their apologetic playbook is well-traveled. They know how to respond to the average evangelical Christian. Ron, very smart guy. We've had him here preaching for us before. Those responses, point by point in that book, by Harvest House Publishers, it's called Reasoning from the Scriptures with Jehovah Witnesses. Very helpful. And if you think, well, that's too big, too detailed for someone else who's just thinking, I just want to know a little bit about it. He's got 10 things to say. It's a short little book to Jehovah Witnesses. I think, I think it says the 10 most important things to, to share with a Jehovah Witness. And that series became to Mormons and, and, you know, to Islam and all the rest. But I'd recommend that. I'll bet we have one in the bookstore. Thank you, Pastor Mike. Yes. Um, I've always wondered about this one. First Corinthians five eleven. Okay. Where Paul exhorts us and says, But now I'm sorry. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name mm -hmm. of a Christian if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater idolater, mm -hmm. a reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. My question is, what if it's even a family member? Okay. Go go back up to verse number nine. This is where we start. And I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters. Since then you would have to go out of the world. The point of this, and he's keeping it very tied to the beginning of the chapter, chapter 5, where he says, 
There's sin in your church, people sitting here in an incestuous sexual relationship, and you're greeting them at the door, handing them a a bulletin, so to speak, and having a donut and coffee with them after church as though everything's copacetic. It's not. You need to set that man out of the church because he's sinning against God, clearly unrepentant, and claiming to be your bro in Christ. That's what he's talking about. And he's having clarified, I didn't mean everyone in the world. Guess who's in the world? My family members. Those are... That's, that's a structure that did not get built on doctrinal connections. That's what the church is built on, doctrinal connections. We're here together because we share a, a commitment and a devotion to the truth. That's not how I got in my family. I got in my family because our, our biology is the same, right? Or maybe because you were adopted into that family. That's a legal arrangement, a biological arrangement. It's Christmas time. It's, it's Thanksgiving. This passage does not apply to them. That's not what this passage is about. See, there's a distinction there. Go ahead, follow up. No, it's good. Okay, if they claim to be Christians, I'm going to make this clear. Even though the context here is about the church, I still want to make it clear to a professing Christian. Hey, you know what? I see a big distinction between what you're saying and living and what the Bible says. I bet they already know that about you. Do they not? Okay, most people that are concerned about that, they already know it. Just like my family, my extended family, they know. Well, it should be obvious, I guess, for me, the pastor man, but they know I I don't agree with your, your, your moral choices. They know that about you. I'll bet your very presence there has already caused them some angst. And I bet you're not invited to some things. Man, I know a little bit about that, not being invited to, to certain things, because they know I'm a, I'm a conviction just being there. And you are too. And so I would just say, be kind, be nice. If it's Thanksgiving, even though they claim to be Christians, they're living a flagrantly immoral life, whatever it might be, I'm still going to go to Christmas. But I'll bet... I don't have to say every time I'm with them, hey, I disagree with your moral choices. They know that. And, and that's why they're not saying, hey, let's go hang out after this because they don't want that conviction. So just continue to be the light, which doesn't mean you have to preach at them every time you see them. But whenever it comes up, if there's ever a chance for you to go, oh, well, that's not biblical. That's why I don't support that or applaud that. Then keep that up. But I'll bet you're there. Yeah. Yep, in the back. Hey, Pastor Mike. Hey. Um, I have a question. Uh, or two questions, rather. The first on um, Mark 10, the request of James and John, specifically when they ask to send this right hand and, and their left, yeah. Jesus makes the preconditions um, to drink the cup that I drank and to be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with. Uh, I always thought the cup was the wrath of God. And so if it's if it's not, why would, or if it is, why would they have to drink that like, like Christ did? Right. Go through his baptism. Okay. Baptism was separate from ours. Let me answer that first, then you can ask your second question. Okay, okay? unless they're tightly related. No. Okay, because I have a few things I want to make sure I get out and don't forget. Good Friday, some of you are here. Good Friday, I guess it was a year ago now when I had the cup of the blessing, cup of God's wrath. The cup of God's wrath, very specific in terms of what was going on at the death of Christ. Obviously, it's an illustration, it's an analogy, drinking the cup. That cup analogy, though, throughout the scripture, drinking a bitter cup a Hebraic kind of idiom. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, a set of words that gives a sense of, I have to go through something terrible. In the category of going through something terrible, clearly the followers of Christ are going to have to go through terrible things. Christ's terrible things that he went through wouldn't even have been on the table were it not for the fact that he was sent specifically to give his life as a ransom for many and absorb the wrath of the Father. So his cup was specifically about the cup of God's wrath. But just as 
Just as it says that we are filling up what's lacking in the sufferings of Christ. I know this. Christ said to tell us die on the cross. It is finished. Paid in full. His suffering for the specific absorption of the wrath of the Father was completely done. And yet he says to us, a lot more suffering that needs to be done in building this church. And you, or I are, you and I are going to continue that on until Christ comes back. So the cup in that sense goes from the specific cup of the Messiah dying on a cross to satisfy the wrath of God to being persecuted, which they would. 11 of the 12, or if you get Judas out of the list, 10 of the 11 were died horrible deaths. Even John, who died at an old age, was died as, a, as an exile. So they're enduring the wrath of this world that would be like the old idiom of drinking this bitter cup with the dregs in it. But God's, Christ rather, was much, much more specific. So they're not doing anything for the vicarious atonement or any kind of satisfying of God's wrath, but they're just finishing up the suffering that all people that ally themselves with Christ have. That great picture that there's the prophecy given to Mary in Luke chapter 1 that Christ would be, Simeon said this to Mary, and Jesus is just a baby, a week old. That son of yours is going to be a sign that, that all of Israel, it's going to come against. It's like a target. That's the way I, I remember preaching it. The idea of, he's a target. Now, you go stand with the target. Now, you don't want to go down to on target, you know, where and say, go stand by the targets down there. No, no, no. I, I want you to stay here behind the line. Why? Because you're going to get shot out there. They're shooting at, Satan, at Satan's shooting at God, as I said last week, and at Christ in, in particular. And if you stand with him, you're going to drink some of the cup, not in any way related to our, our vicarious atonement. So in this sense, I'm going to say Jesus is using that phrase as more generally you'd find it throughout the Old Testament. Although you do see specific references to the God's wrath, but it's not God's wrath, right? There's no kind con- of, first Thessalonians makes it clear. The wrath that we receive is not the wrath of God. It's the wrath that comes because we stand with God. Anyway. Okay. Second question. Unless there's more on that one that um, I missed. If you could talk about the baptism aspect of it as well. Yeah, the baptism. Baptism, baptizo means to be placed into, uh, to be placed into. Even to be baptized by fire is the way that John used it in Luke 3, uh, to be placed into fire. Baptism didn't have just to mean be placed into Christ judicially when I put my trust in him. It didn't just mean get placed into water as a symbol of my justification to people in, in an initiatory rite for the church. Baptism means to be placed into. And so that picture in this sense, was a context of negative, of pain, of suffering. People that are going to climb in places of prominence in the kingdom are going to go through a lot of suffering for their loyalty to Christ in this life. They're going to drink the cup that's similar to the kind of cup that Jesus drank, that though, like our immediate question that Jeff asked about uh, immediate cause, agency, and, and ultimate cause, who killed Christ? Well, the Romans did. Well, the Jewish leaders did. Now, the people jeered at him, right? They, they put thorns up. Okay, but it was God ultimately. So if you step back from God killing his own son, as Isaiah 53 says, you've got people going after him. Well, there's the similarity. Drinking the dregs, drinking the cup, painful. The baptism, what is that? And it doesn't have to do with any, any kind of right in the church. It has nothing to do with being placed into, into Christ for my salvation. It has to do with being placed into this difficult situation. It's like John saying in Luke 3, to be baptized with fire, which I think is a negative reference, not a Pentecostal reference about something, which I think some people go there with that because they've heard that from platforms. But the context is clearly God's judgment. The axe is at the root of the tree. It's about to be thrown into the fire. To be baptized into the fire is to be thrown into pain. So the disciples were going to be baptized into pain. Two ways to say that. 
It's like drinking the cup. It's like being baptized. With the baptism, I'm going to, I'm about to get thrown to the wolves, so to speak, as the, as the kangaroo court of Caiaphas and the Jews and the high priest and the Sanhedrin and the Roman officials and Pilate and then the Roman soldiers. That's what I'm about to go through. You want to sit at a high place of prominence in the kingdom? You'll be that loyal to me that you're going to have a lot of pain too. Baptism, cup. Does that help? Follow up if there's more. Yeah. No, that's, that helped a lot. Okay. Um, and then more for my second question. Yeah, yeah. Kind of just give your opinion on the like pros, cons, safety, and, and dangers of holding to a historical confessional like the Heidelberg or Westminster London Baptist, right. Baptist Confession over just like a statement of faith. Right. Um, so I feel if you could, like for a church to rather hold a historical confession than just right. the kind of common... Yeah, I gotta be careful here because I have so many friends that hold to, you know, Heidelberg and, and, and Westminster Confession of Faith. Confessions, um, can be helpful. Just like on my shelf, I have a long shelf full of, as all of our pastors do, of systematic theologies, which are nothing more than explanations of doctrinal positions, and those can be very helpful. But just like I can pull off, you know, Erickson off the shelf, and I can pull off Raymond, or I can pull off Chafer, or I can pull off whoever. Gun, your favorite guy who does systematic theology. Grudem, that's the one I'm thinking of. I can lay them all out and find that they disagree. And just because I have within the reform circles some confessions that agree, and, and when I make a case to my reform friends, well, why is it that I'm stuck on those? Here's the response I've gotten from the PhDs of the PhDs. They'll say, because that was the era for writing confessions. That's when the mind was the, was the best. And, and I'm not sure I'm, I'm buying that. I understand they didn't have iPhones to distract them or whatever and, and all that. But I don't think I'm going to kind of memorialize one little season coming out of the Reformation as the golden era of thinking theologically and every other systematic theology since has just been trying to live up to the big giants of the, of the, of the confessional writing. Of, of the 16th century. I just, I'm, I'm not of that opinion. And I don't share that with my reformed friends that are so reformed that I hear them quoting the confessions more than they quote the Bible. And I hate to say that, but that's what I hear. And, and so I'm just saying this. I, can, I think we can have a doctrinal statement, particularly in a ministry and a church like ours, and say, here's our doctrinal statement. Uh, we can go into great detail as they do in the confessions of, of the post-reformation period and, and learn a lot. But even those, I can show you. I've got a, a book on my shelf that's the harmonies of the, of the great confessions. And in parallel, much like we do with a lot of things that we put in parallel, you'll see the distinctions even between the, the confessions. And then I want to know, where do I stand? Eventually, you're going to pick one, or you're going to pick another, or you're going to say, well, I just, I'm going to pick 80% of that, and 20% of that, and 10% of that. I'm just saying, they're great. They're helpful. I've studied them. I read them. I've, I've got a parallel on my shelf that sometimes I pick up to try and see how they across the board deal with any particular issue. I mean, I was just reading the confessions two weeks ago, but it doesn't mean that I'm saying that's the snapshot. That's going to be the governance for our church in terms of all that we believe and all that we practice. Although I have great, great respect, brilliant people put the con- confessions together, but I don't think that everything else after that time is not worth having on my shelf or governing our thinking as, as, as theologians or pastors to try and distill a doctrinal statement. And I guess the other thing I would say is they are much more broad, and I, I, I'm thinking, what's helpful for our fellowship? 1 Corinthians 1.10 says, in a church we should perfect, be perfectly agreed in mind and thought. I want to know, what's, what's the standard for that? How far do we go? Do I want to get down to every detail that the Westminster Confession had articulated? Probably not for us as a church to say, hey, we're going to be a church. I think as a group, we're bigger, uh, we're better as, as a larger organization. Now, people argue with me about that. 
Uh, but that means I can't go into every single detail that I'm going to find in all the confessions. A great question, though. Appreciate it. Yeah. Good morning, Pastor Mike. Good morning. My name is Abram. Uh, we're thankful for your ministry and thankful that Compass is our home church. Great. I think uh, last week, I think it was, you preached on David and Goliath and, and talk, describing it as a PG-13 topic in the, in the scriptures. Yes. Uh, my question is just um, some more counsel for going through those kinds of passages in scripture with young kids. Yeah. We have, we have kids five and under. So. Great, great question. I was just talking about this the other day with my wife. I have never been, you can interview all three of my sons, or my, my children, my, my daughter doesn't appreciate being called a son, uh, my two sons and my daughter. Mom and dad as teachers want to teach. The most important curriculum in the world is the Bible. I am not going to come across uh, incest with Lot's daughters or a prostitute, uh, you know, uh, in, in the patriarchs or temple prostitutes or, or homosexuality in Leviticus 18 and say, let's not let them read that. I don't want to explain any of that to them. There are ways to explain prostitution to a four-year-old that doesn't involve a gratuitous explanation of things that they're not even clued into yet. But I want to explain that this is what this means. This is what happened. He paid money to have a kind of, of ooey-gooey relationship like your mom and dad have, and they did it for an hour and a half or so, and that's what prostitution is. Here's what a prostitute is. I will tell, I've will tell. i taught my kids all that from the time that they were old enough to be telling Bible stories, or, or I'm, I'm old enough to hear my Bible stories, which we read to them from the time they were infants before they went to bed. We've been reading the Bible to them from the time they were All I'm saying is I'm not holding anything back. I may not sit there and describe all the ins and outs of of Leviticus 20 with all the rules about here's what you should do if there's incest or whatever. But I'm going to make it clear to them in terms they can understand what these things are. I am not, and yet I'm not the parent sitting there showing them horror movies. We don't watch them. We don't have, we never watched them. We we never, we don't take an inch, a recreational interest in gratuitous gore. We just don't. And yet if there's gore in the Bible... We're going to talk about it, and I'm going to explain it to them, and I'm going to explain it as early as possible, but I'm not going to be gratuitous about it. So I'd say don't hold back. Don't hold back in terms of the content. I want my kids to understand what was going on in the Bible because it's only going to be a snap until they're talking about it on the playground anyway. Well, I'm going to homeschool. Great. Unless you put a brainoscope on their brain and lock it down with a password, they can't drive down the freeway without getting, you know, the gentleman's club with someone in their underwear. What's that about, Dad? And if they don't want to even ask you because they know you don't talk about those things and they're intuitive enough to know we avoid anything that's embarrassing, then they get their education elsewhere. I want my kids to see me as their primary discipler, and that means I'm explaining in detail without being gratuitous or going over the top with anything we read in the Bible because it is a PG-13 document. In Judges, we're chopping up women and sending them throughout Israel. What's that with dismemberment? I got to talk about dismemberment with my four-year-old. I did, but we never took any interest in that. My kids never had an interest in those things. Well, they're fallen, so they had some interest, I suppose, but we never gave them an outlet to have an interest in those things. Great question. We were just talking about that two days ago, my wife and I. Yeah. Hi, good morning. Good morning. Um, I think one of the biggest issues um, in the modern day Christian church um, is the 
not the value of men and women, because I think we all agree that it's equal, but the roles that men and women play um, within marriage and out of marriage within the church. Um, how do you discern what is specific cultural direction from the apostles to a specific church in that time and um, discern out what are timeless principles and timeless truths, just like in 1 Corinthians 11 with the head covering or... Um, yeah. No, that's a great question. And I would go for a lengthier answer, a two-hour answer, to Focal Point and download a, a little series from that passage called Your Gender Matters to God. And in that passage, I make very clear the distinctions and how we distinguish between universal truth in that text and cultural expressions of those truths. And you've got to be careful with that passage because Paul does this, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, talking about the principle, the order of creation, the relationships that God made, and then the expressions of them in the Corinthian church. Okay, Here's the thing. We cannot be, we cannot fit into our cultural's definitions of any of this. So you've got to be ready right now to know I'm not going to fit in. doesn't matter. The world's going to change their views. They constantly do. Look at this whole, this explosion of sexual ethics and and sexual rights that we've had in the last uh, 20 years. They have changed the rules themselves repeatedly about what's right, what's wrong, what we should do, what we shouldn't do. Is, Is my desire for a gender, is it fixed or is it fluid? Can I change who I am? Can I not? You know, is this inborn? Is this preference? Those are things that they're constantly going to debate. So I'm going to go to the Bible and find out what those principles are. And I'm going to look at what is given to us in that format. This is called hermeneutics. We're trying to carefully decipher what the intention of the text is. And when you see things about complementary gifts between men and women, therefore they have complementary roles, I've got to recognize that those statements are given within the context of creation. In other words, God keeps going back in the word and showing us, this is the way I created it. This is the way I set it up. Those things I can't change. Now, the expressions of them in the church, I've got to find out what in this passage has a, an expression built on that principle. And all I'm saying is, it's too easy for us to say, cultural, cultural, it's over, just because I'm looking at head covering and seeing that this expression of femininity in the church, well, that's not an expression of femininity now, unless you're in a Muslim country, so it doesn't apply. Oh, I agree with you in that regard, but... I don't agree that the principle is not valid. And the principle of headship there is as clear as it can possibly be. Because we have complementary gifts. And the Bible says because we have complementary gifts as male and female, then therefore we are to fulfill complementary roles. That's why we have pastor, pastors uh, that are men. Not because we're misogynistic, not because we're male chauvinist, not because we think men are better than women, but because God said this is the pattern for leadership in the church. It's not cultural. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, it's not cultural. Throughout 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11, it's not cultural. It's rooted in creation. Therefore, I don't change it. I can't mess with it. The expressions of what a... uh, Go back to Leviticus when it talks about a woman. The way that it's described is that a woman should not wear man's clothes. That's how the text reads in most English texts. That Hebrew word is really for a uniform. What was considered manly in that cultural context. And in that point, that changes, does it not? To say a woman can't wear pants then, if that were something that our grandparents said in the Midwest, they should wear dresses all the time. Uh, perhaps in a day that made sense doesn't make sense now unless you walk in and go i can't tell is that a guy or a girl what's he that's the kind of distinction i try to drill down two or three layers into in that series your gender matters to god and uh, the first one is a little bit more of a look at the misandry there's a word we don't hear much anymore you know uh, misogynistic misogyny you probably don't know the word misandry which is the opposite matter of fact i tell the story when i was creating that sermon that if i misspelled misogyny 
Microsoft Word goes, nah, 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 nah. you can't spell. If I put misandry in there, it goes, what's that word? It's interesting that uh, even the software company back then, which I hope it comes up now, there is a fight against males today. It's one of the reasons I wrote that book, Raising Men, Not Boys. And I think we've got to see in that first message, you may want to get right to the second message, but that first message about men, I think we've got to see in our culture the attack against our boys, the attack against male leadership, the attack against male distinctiveness. And so I spent a lot of time in that uh, first message. But the second message may be the one that will give you more of the uh, answers to the questions you're asking. But you've got to look at every passage that gives distinction between male and female and find out what's rooted in creation, what is stated as an eternal principle, and what is an expression of those principles in the given passage. Hi, Pastor Mike. Hi. Um, how do I explain, like, hell being a place of the absence of God, but knowing God's attribute of him being omnipresent? Right, right. Omnipresent. Let's think about that philosophically for a minute. To say that God is omnipresent. What are we saying? We're saying Psalm 139. If I went to heaven, he's there. If I went to Sheol, he's there. I go across the sea, he's there. There's nowhere I can go where I'm outside his perception. His perception, his ability to do something powerfully. He is everywhere present. Now, that's not a bad word, omnipresent. It's just that you got to think of it more than some statement of physics. God is spirit. He takes up no space. He doesn't have hands or eyes or, or hair follicles. Christ does, the incarnate second person that Godhead does. So what are we saying? God is able in every place at any time to exercise whatever power, whatever presence, whatever perception he wants. That is God. There is a place. Here's how it's described, though. As Paul writes to the Thessalonians, he says, away, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So the combinational phrase here is, away from his presence. What do we mean by that? Well, what do you normally mean when we talk about the presence of God? I'm not talking about his perception, clearly. He's omniscient. He knows all things. But from the glory of his might, the word I'm thinking of, the Greek, which I'm assuming is there. I don't have my Greek New Testament. But is the, 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 the ability of God, not the ability of God, but the, the determined express power of God to do something, his might, his glory, glory, doxa, his, his, his greatness, his goodness. Everything that is good in experience comes from God's expression of glory. He does something, when you eat a good meal today, it's like the glory of God. When you get a nap this afternoon, it's the glory of God. That is God's expression of his grace. There's a place where God says, you can't have any of that. The expression of my, my glorious might is removed. So that's the active participation of God in a place where he's decided, I'm not going to have that active presence. I think presence is, is defined and, and, and mitigated by the next phrase, which is the glory of his might, the ESV translates it. So it's not as though there's no perception. It's not as though this is not, I mean, it's not like Satan is the king of, of the lake of fire because God's not there. God is in charge of everything and all things, not a molecule in, in anywhere that God is in control, not a spirit that God is not the Lord of. It's just that here he says, I'm pulling back my gifts, my power, and my glory which is a really bad thing, and that's why you don't want to go there. Yes, question. Um, so uh, recently in the DBR, uh, so in Acts chapter 16, when Paul meets Timothy and wanted Timothy to accompany him, mm-hmm. uh, it says, uh, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So, you know, um, the letter that they're sending, yeah, you know what I mean. So, I think, well, go ahead. I think so, right? go so ahead. The, letter, the letter that they're sending saying, you know, um, no sexual immorality, uh, you know, other things that um, in other passages, like uh, don't, don't uh, eat what's been sacrificed to 
titles. Right. And later um, clarified that that in and of itself isn't anything. It's right. just for the conscience of other believers, right? Um, if he circumcises uh, Timothy, at what point does it become kind of like you're you are copacetic with what they're saying. Yeah, totally. Great, 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 great question. We have to go to Galatians to see where Paul now is vehement against them being circumcised. And you ask the question, wait a minute, you had Timothy circumcised. What are you talking about? And he makes it clear. If you allow yourself to be circumcised, Christ is of no value to you. Okay, Those statements plucked out of context would be like, you've just condemned Timothy, you got him circumcised. Uh, you've got to put together the, the argument of Galatians, which in the immediate context is the fact that they are relying on the law. In that case, the ceremonial law. I want the signs of my Judaism to be something that I say makes me right with God. It's why at the beginning of that book, Paul has to lambast Peter for withdrawing when he was with, you know, uh, he didn't want to show himself as eating, you know, non-kosher food. And he says, no, you're wrong. We are free. That's the problem. These Judaizers, he calls them. Uh, I wish they'd go on and emasculate themselves. What a crazy, uh, colorful, dramatic way to put it. These guys are all about circumcision to make themselves right with God. They believe that those signs of the covenant were necessary. And so Paul goes, you guys shouldn't do that. Clearly, whatever's going on here, the same guy that wrote that is saying, we're trying to do an evangelistic ministry here among the synagogues. And uh, I got a guy here. They know his background. They know his parents. They think he's not a Jew. They think he's not circumcised. So we're going to go have him circumcised. Then I got to go to Corinthians and say, why would he do those things? Just like you said, why would even at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, them be worried about meat that was offered to idols? Who cares? He says in Corinthians... Eat it. Don't ask any questions about conscience. Corinth's a very different place than what Paul was addressing in the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. They were in a very Greek-oriented, Roman Greco culture, and it was like, doesn't matter, unless it does matter. And if it matters to someone, then don't embolden their conscience and make them stumble. And he writes so much more on the other side of this to the Romans, saying, it doesn't matter if, if, I, if I eat meat, it doesn't matter. I don't want to cause my brother to stumble. I know that when Paul says, I become all things to all men, those under the law as under the law, yet not without the law of Christ, those kinds of statements prove to me that what he's doing here is accommodating the cultural expectation for the sake of his ministry. And that is, listen, I don't want to be excluded from the synagogue. I'm in there, as we read today in our daily Bible reading, in the school of Tyrannus. I want to be in the synagogues reasoning every day with them about Christ. I don't want the circumcision thing to stand in the way. The circumcision thing at this point in the ministry, in this specific location, was to them a, it's like wearing a yarmulke as you went to a place. Get the mic again. That's fine. We'll follow up. But the problem is, Paul doesn't, I should say the clarity is that Paul doesn't have the problem that the Galatians have. That is, they want to put themselves under the ceremonial law to get right with God. Let's have, I know you got more to that. So um, at what point does it become that... Uh the Jewish people that you know, he's doing this for to, to minister to, Yes, they feel like, hey, but you're, you're one of us, then you're agreeing with us in our stance. No, I don't think there's two minutes with Paul opening his mouth when they don't make very clear that what you're doing is wrong. It'd be like you and I. If I had a chance to take you to one of my Orthodox Jewish friends, and I said, we're going to go to his house, we're going to share the gospel. And he said, but I'd like you to put on a yarmulke on your head when you come into his house. I think that's the equivalent of what Paul did here. You'd put it on your head. You're going in there to share the gospel. And you'd say, okay, I want to talk to you about Christ. Let's look at Isaiah 53. Let's talk about Messianic prophecies. And you'd throw that thing on going, it means nothing. It means nothing. 
But I'm going to do that because I want to share the gospel. Now, over here in this church, they're all putting it on. Go, you can't be saved. You don't put that on your head. That's what circumcision was to the Galatian churches. And he goes, stop it. You put a yarmulke on your head. Christ is of no value to you. Because they're trusting in that as a means to get right with God. Oh, man, last question. Sorry. How would you balance um, helping someone resource-wise versus enabling them in light of things like bipolar, manic depressant, where they're actually on medication for a cystic amount of time? Restate that question. So when you say resources, what do you mean? Meaning financially or opening your house. Okay. You know, to people I financially bailing someone out who's in need. Yeah, yeah. Right? Versus enabling them. Right. But they're they're bipolar. Right. So you've done this for 10 right. years. Right. Yeah, and that, right. you'd have to look at a case by case and look at where in the world you're going to have to say this is enough. When you say enabling, you have to make sure that that's really what you're doing at this point because you would rather side on the air of being kind and being compassionate and being helpful. So I'd say, if you think the line is here, go, a, go another mile or two past it to show that I'm going to be kind. Unless you think, no, it's very clear, I'm causing more harm than good. And it's, it's like tough love with parents. At some point, you're going to have to say, I'm going to let you fall on your own in this. And I got a situation I was talking with someone about, uh, a brother was a drug addict and was more than just taking pills, uh, you know, for psychotropic or, uh, you know, for, for a psychological diagnoses. And uh, it's clear, I'm not going to give you money because you're going to go out and, and, and use those for your drug habit. So you've got to know in every situation, where am I starting to make my help unhelpful? It's counterproductive. And I'd say that's the kind of situation Every single case by case probably need to come in with an outside objective, another brother in Christ, and just lay it out on the table and go, help me make sure I'm not missing anything. And, of course, any of our pastors are available for that kind of thing to say, let's look at every situation. Let's make sure that you're not abandoning someone you could help and that the help that you're providing is truly helpful because that's a hard situation. But we run into that all the time, and it's tough. But that would need more than just a general sketch. Make sure your help is truly helpful. And you know what it is to enable someone. If a drug addict comes to the parking lot today and says, hey, give me some money, I'm not going to give him money. I'm not going to give you money. Money is not what you need. You need to get involved in something like accountability, discipleship, relationship, like I've had in this back bedroom of my house where they vomit all over my mattress then go through detoxing and become non-drug addicts. I mean, we need more of that. Not that my house is now <laughs> your place for your drug, drug addicts, but, but I've been through it. And I know that they, we, that's the help they need, not here's a $50 bill. You know, I have a nice day. And you know that. I mean, that's why I'm sure you look carefully, especially in Orange County, at people that are, you know, saying, hey, give me some money, as opposed in, in telling you that they're not going to eat without it, which, of course, is not the case in Orange County. Uh, there's a million resources, and you could carry those around in your car, not that you're going to make any friends by handing that out, but we have to be shrewd and wise about those kinds of things. But we want to be compassionate, and that's why I'd rather err on the side of being kind, but I want to make sure that that kindness doesn't turn into enabling someone to hurt themselves, which can happen. But hopefully, my prayer is every time we do this, that there's something to chew on, something that will encourage you, something that will motivate you, something that will challenge you, that you'll take home. Uh, and, and I pray it'll result in something good, even though we didn't walk through a text of Scripture. So let me pray. God, thank you for the chance that we have to speak together candidly about your word. Thanks for our church, their love for your word. I do pray that we be, uh, God, just good, thoughtful, devoted students to your word. 
And even as we started early on with that question about the reliability of your word, that we would know that your word has been not only given to us, but carefully uh, governed by your providence to come down to us in a reliable format. So, uh, God, help us to study, to show ourselves approved unto God, workmen that don't need to be ashamed, who can rightly handle the word of truth. And I pray this morning in some way this day would help us and move us in that direction and that some tidbit might have been a good challenge for us even devotionally. So do this, God, we pray, and dismiss us now with your favor upon us. In Jesus' name, amen.